Jesus taught that loving God and loving one's neighbor goes hand in hand. Can't separate the two. The same description of unfaithfulness concerning the holy things of God is used for describing unfaithfulness towards one's neighbor. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him or through robbery or if he has exhorted from his companion or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do. Look closely at that first phrase in verse 2. When a man sins and acts unfaithfully against him, the Lord. You would expect, given what I said about moving from this discussion of defrauding God to defrauding our neighbor, that perhaps it would say, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against your neighbor. It doesn't say that. It's going to go on to talk about that, but first, it wants to make very, very clear that when we defraud our neighbor, we are first defrauding God. You can't get away from that. And, of course, the Lord, through Moses, gives us all kinds of different examples here in those verses that I have just read. They are not exhaustive, as we know from the, 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 the last phrase there. So that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man might do. That is pretty open-ended. But we are given specific examples of the way people might sin and what is to happen. We're dealing with deception. We're dealing with oppression. We're dealing with all of those different ways that we relate to one another on a basis that is anything less than righteous and holy. What's being described here is something that we have all experienced and we know very well. We've all been defrauded. We've all been deceived. We've all been oppressed in one way or another. People have misled us but lest we keep it there in the context of our own victimization, let's make sure we turn it around because the opposite truth is also a reality in our lives. We've done the same to other people. Mm -hmm. And when we have done that, and the violator here in ancient Israel realizes his guilt, verse 4, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty. Now, he became guilty as soon as he sinned. But what this is talking about is him realizing his guilt. Then what does he do? Then he follows a procedure for restitution. Again, we're not told how he has realized his crime, but it's been brought to his attention somehow. And he wants to make it right. He knows what he ought to do. And there is restitution now involved. His remorse for his behavior
to his confession and his conviction. And now he's going to make it right. And the first step involved is right there. It is the admission of his sin. He recognizes that he has sinned. Now we're going to respond. And verses 4 and 5, he, he becomes guilty. He recognizes his sin. And now he's got to restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or about anything which he swore falsely. Isn't it amazing that someone can do one of those things and not realize that he was in the wrong? Once again, we come back, we're faced with the extent at, at, at which we can rationalize our sinful behavior. We can lie to ourselves very easily. And so, he not only makes restitution, but there's also this additional charge again. One-fifth more, 20% above the value of that which was defrauded. And the reason for the additional charge was to compensate the owner for the loss of use during his, the time which his property was withheld. It's a restoration. It's also a motivation, obviously, for the one who has taken this property by, by fraud, not to do it again. Doesn't work out well. You're not making a profit when you have to return what you took and then 20% on top of that. It's not a wise way to live. And then the violator also has to bring a sacrifice. Verse 6. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Sin. Guilt.
Remorse is appropriate, but remorse alone does not absolve us of guilt. The only means by which we are debt-free is by the cancellation of our debt through the blood shed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And if you have not yet bowed the knee before Jesus Christ, if you have not turned your sin over to Him and laid them at the foot of the cross, then today is the day of salvation for you. Turn from your sin and allow Jesus to be that sacrifice which carries your sin away. This is God's design. This is the gospel. And brothers and sisters, friends who may be here, hearing this for the first time, there is no other way. There is no other way. The world will tell you that there are many ways to God. It is a lie. There is one God. And the one way to Him is through Jesus Christ. You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Your sin must be taken away by the blood of Christ. There is no other way. But there is a way. God has provided a way. Come to Christ. Confess your sin to Him. Turn from your sin. And He will receive you. And He will make you clean. And wash you. Father, we pray that this is exactly what you would do today. For those who do not, at this moment, know you savingly through Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you would change hearts and lives. And for those of us, Father, who do know you through Christ, we rejoice in the sacrifice that you have offered for us. We rejoice in the fact that there is a way by your grace, Father, you have shown it to us. May we live in thankfulness for the gospel and in a desire, Father, to see others come to understand it as well. In Jesus' name.